think we're ready. Uh, is it 6.30? Wow, ding, ding. Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the November 2nd Board of Zoning Appeals meeting. Some quick notes before we begin. Uh, my name is Luke Mortensen, and tonight I'm with Catherine Week, staff liaison to the Board of Zoning Appeals. We will work alongside the chair to facilitate tonight's meeting. This meeting, uh, as always, is being recorded and broadcast live on the city's YouTube and public access channels. Please mute yourself when not actively speaking, um, and please keep your video on for the duration of the meeting. There will not be screen sharing as a part of this meeting tonight. All attachments, reference materials, and submissions from the public are included in the agenda packet. The chair will call for in-person and virtual public comment for those who wish to speak. All motions will need to be stated clearly. After a motion is made and seconded, staff will call on each board member individually to provide their vote. Staff will then need to announce whether the motion carried and the count of that vote. Now I will toss it to Catherine to see if we have quorum tonight. Good evening, commissioners. I'll go ahead and call a roll. Herod? Here. Met board members, not commissioners. Palos? Here. Rankin? Here. Shalinsky? Here. And Shenuda? Here. And we do have quorum, so we can continue. All right. Uh, welcome to the November BZA meeting. It is a busy agenda, so let's go ahead and get started. Um, item B is communications. Uh, we acknowledge any communications to come before the board. Uh, we disclose any ex parte communications and or abstentions and um, announce any agenda items that will be deferred. Uh, starting with the third one, I believe there is one agenda item that is being deferred. So um, there will only be one public hearing tonight. On uh, A and B, does anyone have anything to disclose? So this is Catherine Weeks, staff liaison. We do not have any additional communications. They all came in and went into the packet, so you should have those. Any ex parte communications? Okay, hearing none, let's um, proceed with election of officers for the coming year. We are um, electing a chair and a vice chair for the coming year. Um, I'm happy to do it again, and I'm happy to not do it again. So, um, do we have any nominations? Yeah, I'll, I'll nominate you, Barry, to uh, be our chairman again. Okay. You've done a great job. Thank you. Uh, I'll second. Do we have a move by Palos, second by Chanud. Do we have other nominations? So we have an, a first and a second. Um, so we can go ahead and have a vote if you so desire, since we have a first and a second on the floor. Okay. Um, all of those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? Aye. 
Okay. Um, thank you for your vote of confidence. Uh, we need to also elect a vice chair. Do we have any nominations for that position? I'll nominate Dean. I, I appreciate that, but I, I'm concerned that I'm going to be traveling a lot okay. this coming year, so I'm, I would have to decline. Okay. But thank you. Adam, are you our vice chair right now? I currently am, yeah. Then I... Well, I would nominate Sorry. Mr. Rankin to continue as our vice chair with the idea that he would be a seasoned veteran of the PZA come next year, ready to take the mantle of power. <laughs> All right. Uh, does anybody second the nomination of Adam Rankin? I second that. All right. Um, let's proceed to a vote then. All in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? All right. So, Chair, we also, um, as part of the BZA bylines, have to uh, hold a vote for your secretary slash staff liaison. So we'll need one more set of nominations and vote before we move on. Okay. Um, that was not on the agenda, but... Uh, Nominate Catherine Weeks before she runs out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do we have a second? Second. All right. Moved by... Uh, Travis, second by Adam to elect Catherine Week as our secretary slash staff liaison. All in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? All right. Um, it is really nice um, in this week in particular to have an election that has no rancor. Um, <laughs> so I wish the other ones were. I wish the other ones were so smooth. <laughs> All right. Um, moving on to item D, we have uh, three sets of uh, minutes to approve from uh, June, July, and September. Um, I'm happy to do it in one motion unless anyone would like to do it in three. Does somebody have a motion? I would move to accept the minutes as submitted by staff and as set forth um, in the D1 of tonight's agenda. All right. Uh, moved by Herod. Is there a second? I'll second it. Second by Palos. Uh, all in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? All right. Minutes are unanimously approved. Um, Item E is a uh, training in the Kansas Open Meetings Act. Um, 
which I'm happy to proceed with, but I wonder if it might not be better to go ahead and do our public hearing item first since we have people that are present for that and then do our training. I, I can go either way. Maybe our guests would like to learn about the Open Meetings Act. I don't know. <laughs> he said no. Stan said no. He's shaking his head. <laughs> He doesn't want to be with us all night. Um, is everyone okay with swapping E and F? Yeah. Yes. 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 There's no reason to keep them. All right. Uh, we could vote on that. I think I'm going to just go ahead and say let's do it. Um, is that okay? I think you go ahead, just go ahead and okay. formalize it with a vote. That would be great. She said we can go ahead and. Okay. So item F is a public hearing item. We are considering a request for variance. Um, B-23-00337. Um, this is a request for a variance from the uh, maximum area standards for an accessory dwelling unit. Um, the uh, applicant is seeking to have their ADU at 1,260 square feet, which is an increase of 300 square feet from the 960 square foot maximum uh, in the code. Uh, the property address is 1500 Lernard, uh, submitted by Hernley Associates on behalf of Carolyn French and Brendan French who are the property owners of record. So let's uh, proceed with uh, staff report and then we can go from there. Okay, thank you. Good evening, board members. Luke Mortensen, Planner with Planning and Development Services. As Chair Shalinsky just noted, tonight's remaining public hearing item is a variance from the maximum area standards for an accessory dwelling unit. The request is to increase the area of a proposed accessory dwelling unit, or ADU, from 960 square feet to 1,260 square feet, located at 1500 Lenard Avenue. I'll now briefly run through the five variance criteria. However, I'll note a more complete analysis is located within the staff report. Criteria number one focuses on uniqueness based on the subject property's platting and zoning. The subject property is an approximately two and a half acre partially platted lot located in the southeast corner of East 15th Street and Lenard Avenue. The bulk of the property remains unplatted and is legally described via meets and bounds description. However, the southwest corner of the property was previously platted into two separate lots accessed via Lenard Avenue during the 1960s. The southern lot addressed as 1520 Lenard Avenue was sold and the existing detached dwelling was constructed. The more northern lot remained unbuilt and was combined with the larger subject property by Douglas County for taxing purposes in the 1990s since the properties were under common ownership. 
ownership. This layout is shown on both figures one and two in the staff report, as well as the subdivision plat documents attached to this agenda. Per Douglas County and city annexation records, all structures at the subject property, including the proposed accessory dwelling unit structure, were constructed prior to their annexation into the city of Lawrence in 1956. Additionally, all the subject structures were constructed prior to the adoption of zoning and codes in Douglas County in 1966. So they were constructed before Douglas County adopted zoning and before they were annexed into the city. The subject property is, lar is a larger lot than most of the surrounding lots in the Barker and East Lawrence neighborhoods. However, as you can see on figures eight and, fig and nine of the staff report, much of the area bounded by East 15th Street, East 23rd Street, Barker Avenue, and the Burroughs Creek Trail was developed prior to the adoption of zoning in the county and prior to annexation into the city. Figures nine and 10 also show how many of the area's lots are unusually large, abnormally shaped, or partially platted. Staff recognizes that the subject property and its structures are interesting and may be historically significant. However, staff also concludes that the subject property does not exhibit characteristics of uniqueness that warrant an increase in the maximum area for a proposed accessory dwelling unit. Moving on to criteria number two, um, which focuses on potential adverse effects upon the rights of adjacent property owners or residents. In staff's opinion, the requested variance will not adversely affect the rights of adjacent property owners or residents. An accessory dwelling unit with an increased maximum area would not restrict those adjacent property owners, residents, or tenants from maintaining their existing land uses. Staff did not receive any written, verbal, phone call, or in-person communications on this proposed variance. Moving on to the third criteria, which is our unnecessary hardship. In staff's opinion, strict adherence to the Land Development Code would not constitute an unnecessary hardship as defined by the Land Development Code and included within the staff report. This proposed variance request would be a solution to a design in a unit size preference, however, or excuse me, rather than a relief mechanism to mitigate an arbitrary and capricious interference with the applicant's basic right of property ownership. A denial would not deprive the applicants of their property without compensation. The subject property and the subject structure could accommodate a compliant accessory dwelling unit and would remain a compliant accessory structure even if this variance is denied. Moving on to criteria number four, the adverse effects on public health, safety, morals, order, convenience, prosperity, or general welfare. In staff's opinion, granting the requested variance would not create an adverse impact upon the above listed items. The request in question is contained within the parcel owned by the applicants and would not create any spillover noxious effects to the surrounding area. The existing accessory structure is adequately set back from the adjacent property lines and a future accessory dwelling unit of any size is subject to the accessory dwelling use standards, which include an accessory dwelling unit registration and affidavit that are recorded at the Douglas County Register of Deeds. Finally, the fifth criteria focuses on the general spirit and intent of the code. In staff's opinion, approval of this variance is inconsistent with the spirit and intent of the land development code. The variance process is intended to equalize the development process for properties that exhibit unique conditions and mitigate unnecessary hardships caused by strict adherence to our code, regardless of the applicant's land use. The code, provides, uh, the code provides development standards for both accessory structures and accessory dwelling units. 
It intends for accessory dwelling units to be clearly subordinate to a lot's principal dwelling unit. For that reason, the code permits accessory dwelling units to be 33% the size of the principal dwelling unit's living area or 960 square feet, whichever is less. Dwelling units that exceed this size begin to exhibit characteristics that are more in line uh, or more reminiscent of a standard detached dwelling than an accessory subordinate dwelling unit. Staff recognizes the historic nature and significance of the structure and supports its redevelopment and continued use. However, staff cannot recommend a variance that increases this property's development rights when compared to adjacent properties. A code compliant 960 square foot accessory dwelling unit within this 1,260 square foot structure would leave about 300 square feet of non-ADU area. This space could be used as a vehicle garage stall, a storage room, a studio, or an office. However, it cannot be part of the adjacent dwelling unit. It can remain just part of a accessory dwelling or accessory structure, excuse me. Staff does not believe the request satisfies all five criteria required to obtain a variance. Again, the variance process is intended to equalize development such that remarkably unique properties can establish code compliant land uses in a comparable manner to other code compliant properties in that zone or district. The request at hand is a, is a proposed um, solution um, to a specific structure rather than a relief mechanism um, required to establish a code compliant use. So to conclude, staff recommends denial of this request to increase the maximum area for an accessory dwelling unit located at 1500 Lennard Avenue. With that, I'll wrap up and note that both applicants and their design professionals are with us tonight to answer your questions as well. Okay, thank you. Um, do any of the board members have questions for the staff at this time? Okay. Um, hearing no questions from the board, let's proceed with... Um, any comments that uh, the uh, architectural team for the applicants would like to make? Hi, I'm Megan Brewery of Hernley Associates. I'm also here with Stan Hernley of Hernley Associates and Caroline French, the owner. Um, we prepared a short presentation um, for tonight's item uh, that's attached at the end of the um, packet, the agenda packet. So I'll just kind of walk through those images. Um, starting on the second uh, second page of the slide, um, it shows the parcel uh, outlined in red um, at 1500 Lennard. Uh, north is up, just to kind of get your bearings. Um, and then the Sunflower Farm is to the west or left in the image. Um, just to note, this is a large property, approximately 2.7 acres or 117,500 square feet, um, surrounded by trees and fencing. Um, and the uh, the red pin indicates the location of the, the proposed ADU um, that we're discussing tonight. It's located at the south end of the property, um, back beyond the main house. Um, then on the 
third slide, we have two photos of the site um, taken from the corner at 1500 and Lennard looking at the property and looking down the drive of the property. Um, from those two images, you can see that, uh, or you can't see the house um, or the, the proposed ADU. Um, they're very obscured by the landscaping and fencing. Third slide, or the next slide, is uh, the northeast corner of the property and the southwest corner of the property. Um, again, the both houses are obscured by the trees and fencing. Um, there's on one side you can just barely make out the, the secondary house in it, and that's just from you know walking around actually looking for it. It's very hard to see from the road. The next slide shows a picture of the main house, which is 5,476 square feet, and the proposed ADU um, at 1,260 square feet. Um, as you can see from the photos, um, the main house is really a, a large kind of grand structure with the craftsman details, um, and the, the proposed ADU is a much more modest structure. Um, but very residential with you know the shutters and a typical window openings. Um, so yeah, that's what those two photos show. Um, the next slide, just kind of same photo, but um, just highlighting some of the points. It's circa 1870 dwelling, um, and it's been nominated to the National Register of Historic Places um, as an early example of um, a national folk style house in uh, Lawrence or just outside of Lawrence um, when it was originally built. And the total enclosed area is 1,260 square feet, as I mentioned. Um, and so then the next slide would be the plans of, uh, proposed plans of the building. Um, we'd be using the, the enclosed space um, on the, I guess the east side of the house as the kitchen and new bathroom. Um, then where the garage is at, um, which was a later um, change to this house. It used to all, it used to completely be a dwelling structure, uh, but in the 1960s it was or approximately in the 1960s it was likely changed into this garage. Um, but that would be enclosed again in the proposed plans as living space. And then the second story would have um, two bedrooms and a bathroom. Um, the next slide shows a couple more photos of the house just to show it's very residential structure, very modest. It's clearly a secondary structure on the property. Um, it would not it would not take precedent over the main structure of the property. And then the next slide is uh, two photos of the interior of the house uh, showing the banister um, and one of the bedrooms. Um, it's clearly residential on the interior. That's what it was built for and that's what it's, um, yeah, that's what it's original purpose was and what it's been used for historically. Uh, and then, yeah, that's the, that's pretty much the presentation. Um, so we thank you for your time and your consideration. Um, Stan, did you have anything to add? Uh, just a couple of thanks, things. Thanks, Megan. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think uh, in looking at the project, we're looking for its uniqueness and its hardship. I think that's the main two features. Uh, the uniqueness really comes from having two dwellings that are both uh, historic listed on the same property and that they're both on a very large lot. Uh, this lot could be subdivided. Uh, it's basically 16 times larger than is required in its zoning district. There could be <laughs> easily 12 or 15 houses uh, much larger than this ADU that's uh, 
already existing uh, built in that area. Uh, so in terms of density, it's not uh, really an, an issue of um, uh, causing a problem. Uh, the other issue is hardship. Um, so the hardship issue comes from um, not being able to use the entire structure as an ADU. Uh, staff mentioned that uh, it could still partially be an ADU and partially not an ADU um, finished space. Um, but that historically isn't its um, um, use. It was uh, historically a, a residence that was lived in by um, uh, folks that worked on the property. Um, and by not being able to convert the uh, ADU or the, the this building to uh, an ADU, uh, they wouldn't be able to use the rehabilitation tax credit program that they're planning to use for the project. Uh, if they were building something new, uh, that would all be uh, not available to them. So I think those are the uniqueness and the hardship part. Thank you. And I, don't, I, I don't know if Carolyn would like to speak or not. Uh, I think you got it. I don't have anything to add at this point. Okay. Um, do any board members have any questions for the uh, applicant or the architectural team? I, I have a question. Okay, please. Okay. Um, my question pertains to the uh, existing structure. And I read in the staff report that it had originally been uh, the, the whatever qualifies it to have a kitchen to make it a dwelling was removed. And I'm wondering why, do you know why uh, the appliances or whatever it was that required was required to designate it as a dwelling? Why was that, why were those removed? And my, the, my reason for asking that is, is that if if they hadn't been removed, I, I understand we wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know why they were removed um, exactly, um, but it would have been before uh, the Carolyn and Brendan uh, took ownership of the property. Okay. I, I do know that they were used as a horse barn at one point, and so that may have been part of the reason. And that's why that part was kind of looks like a garage because it was actually used as a horse barn at one point. So, okay. Um, other questions. So I'm going to ask a question of staff. Um, it seems like the, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like the issue here is that um, 
the owners wish to use the property um, for an ADU um, larger than the code calls for. Um, the property could be theoretically replatted, and this could be a 1,200-plus square foot residence, or um, under uh, the double density provisions of the code, if it were used for low-income housing, it could be a separate residence, but the issue is that it's an ADU and therefore um, is out of compliance with the um, requisites of uh, maximum size. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. So, of course, if they submitted the proper applications to um, subdivide the property via our major subdivision process and dedicated the right of way and all the public improvements, yes, it's possible that you could plat a lot around this structure and it could become a detached dwelling on its own lot. Um, the RS7 district, with this, which this is, does permit the affordable housing density bonus. That's the two, the two um, houses on one lot. That does have the affordability requirement, so both structures would have to be permanently affordable. Um, and so long as it fit all of those criteria, yes, from a, from a code perspective, looking at it preliminarily, it could also um, be two T-Dutch drawings on one lot through the affordability route. Okay, thanks. Um, anyone else have any questions for either um, applicant or staff? Mr. Chair, I have a question. Yes. Um, I guess this was in front of the HRC recently, and it says in the staff report they were supportive of this variance. Does anybody know anything about that? So they um, heard it as a miscellaneous item at the, I believe it was October meeting. Um, and it was presented at the end of their regular, regularly scheduled agenda. And um, they uh, were in support of continuing to use it as a residential unit, basically. Thank you. Does applicant have anything to add with regard to the HRC? Okay, I'm not hearing. I'll defer to Stan on this one. So I think that it just came up on the agenda. We weren't at that meeting. Um, so I think it just came up on the agenda as one of the items coming before BZA that would also be of interest to the HRC. Stan is correct. Um, Lynn Zollner, our Historic Resources Administrator, brought that to the, um, brought that to the HRC, given the, uh, that it's encumbered by locally listed historic environments. Okay, thank you. Um, 
Okay, any further questions for um, anyone from board members? Well, I have a question for both staff and the, uh, the applicant, and I'm just guesstimating from my own efforts to look at your floor plan, but it looks to me like the additional 300 square feet that you're wanting is what appears to be the garage currently. Is, am I correct about that? I'll let Megan speak to that. Yes, that, that is approximately That's it. So otherwise, you're under the uh, 900, and, is it 960, 960 square feet? I think it's close. I don't know. So uh, what I'm getting at is the, the structure as it is right now, absent the use of the garage, would, would comply with the ADU requirements for square footage. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Okay. Other questions? Okay. Um, I'm going to ask now um, whether there is anyone from the public that would like to comment. I don't see anyone in the room or on Zoom, but um, make sure that we make that opportunity available if there is anyone. Yep, I'm not seeing anybody on Zoom. All right. Uh, that being the case, I would entertain a motion now to close the public hearing portion of this item. Do I have a motion? I'll motion to close public hearing. Moved by Rankin, is there a second? I second that. Second by Chanud. All in favor of closing the public hearing on this item, please uh, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Okay. Public hearing is closed, and um, I will bring it back to the board for any discussion and or motions. Oh, can I just follow up with my previous question? Yes. I had asked the applicant, but does staff have a comment on the size of the building currently and could it be used as an ADU uh, absent the use of the garage, or the garage could be used as a garage. It wouldn't count as part of the square feet. Th that's correct. So as long as the, you know, as long as it was separated formally right. from the dwelling unit. And not part of the habitable space. That's correct. Okay. Um, any other Questions, discussion, or motions? Uh, 
I, I don't see a problem with this if they want to convert the garage to a living area. Okay. That space already exists. Just my thought. I'm 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 in agreement with Peter here. I uh, I I know they have options. Uh, I'd probably be opposed to this, uh, except that I do think that there are several unique features to this, and I think the uh, the question of hardship, you know, on balance. Uh, wanting to restore the building, wanting to get full use of it, and most particularly is that it was a residence at one time. Um, it's hard to factor that in objectively, but it just seems to me that that's a, in my mind, that's kind of an overriding factor. It's, it's you're taking the unit back to what it was uh, originally. So I'm, I'm not opposed to this. I mean, they could easily split it and build a house there, and then it's either way they're going to have the ability to do it. Um, no, no neighbors had a problem with it. It's unique, two and a half acres. It's not affecting anybody, and they're going to save the building. Do. Um any of the folks on Zoom have any further discussion to contribute? I don't know if it's much to contribute, but I'm kind of on the same mind that as the previous two. Like it's existing building. Um, they're obviously trying to restore it back to what it was originally before the garage. So I'm, you know, I don't. See an issue with it. Okay. Do we have a motion? Anyone? I I push a motion to approve this variance request. Okay, motion to approve, and um, do you want to address any of the factors further? Well, in, in your motion, or just that you believe it meets the five criteria? It does, per what the, what the city presented, it doesn't. But what they want to do with the property, it's common, yeah. it's common, f you know, they're going to finish the garage to a living area. Um, they're not asking to demolish the building and put another house. I'd like to second this. And I, I would just like to say that, again, the, the, I, I don't disagree with staff's assessment. I just think that the, 
matter of interpreting the fact that there was a dwelling unit there before was not it, it, they brought it up, but it wasn't considered as an element or a variable. I think it's important. I think the size of the lot uh, is extremely important. I think the fact that there are two units on one property that was, uh, the both units were created before the property was brought into the city under city regulations. I think all those are very unique circumstances. Uh, and the hardship is, is a, like I said, I, I think the hardship is a difficult one uh, because it does seem as though it's a matter of preference with them, but I can understand why you would want to use the entire structure. What do you think? Your thoughts? Um, my thoughts, I'm struggling with it a little bit. The uniqueness of it, I'm pretty comfortable with um, because um, there really are not, I mean, there are some large lots in that part of the city, but this is bigger than most of them and most of them are not uh, Most of them are not uh, lots that have two structures at all on the same lot, much less two historic structures. So I'm pretty satisfied with that. Um, the hardship is maybe a little tougher. Um, I think myself it's not it's not even the hardship to the property owners that I consider as much as the hardship to the uh, community and the historic nature of it. Um, I would very much hate to see a demolition take place because they can't use it as an ADU. Um, that's maybe not the traditional definition of hardship, but um, as the owner of a historic house myself, um, I realize that, you know, once they're gone, they're gone. And there's been way more of that in this town than I would like to see. Um, I'd really love to hear from Travis or Adam. I think, uh, Chairman Shalinsky, I think he literally, I was actually excited when you brought up the hardship um, prong because you read my mind. I believe 
the hardship would be to the community. Our, our land development code is replete with admonitions to preserve historical character in properties. Um, this property sits on the exact footprint that it's occupied for 100 years. It's a 150-year-old property altogether. It was a residence converted to a horse barn, want to take it back to its original use. It's clearly unique, and I think, yeah, I think a prior knucklehead owner also created a hardship when they ripped out all the accessories so that they could turn it into a horse barn. And I have no idea whether that was conforming at the time, but I suspect it wasn't. Um, so really, this this thing is being returned to its first and, and its first and intended use. So I believe all the prongs are met here. Okay. We have a motion and a second. Are we ready to vote? Or is there any further discussion? Was there a second? Yes, I second. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, just make sure. Janude moved and Palos second. Okay. Okay. Let's proceed with the vote then. Uh, staff, would you call the roll, please? Sure. Herod? I vote in favor of the motion. Rankin? Uh, yes, in favor. Palos? Yes. Chalinski? Yes. Shenouda? Yes. And the motion carries. Okay, thank you. Megan and Stan, I'll email you guys tomorrow, okay? Okay. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, All right. Guys. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you for a good discussion. Um, we are going to uh, go back to, I think it's item E in the agenda, which is uh, open meetings, training, and discussion. Yes, we should have Randy Larkin with us, our city attorney, who's going to walk through the training for us. Good evening. Uh Board of Zoning Appeals members. I'm Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney, and we're here tonight to talk about the Kansas Open Meetings Act and conflicts of interest. This is an annual training. It's uh, a little dry even as attorneys things go. So if you have any questions as we go along, that'd be great. Keep things moving along. Um, even though it is dry, it is very important to keep yourselves out of trouble, keep the city out of trouble, and that's why we do this annually. Anyway, we're going to talk about the Kansas Open Meetings Act and conflicts of interest, and we will start with the Kansas Open Meetings Act. Uh, the Kansas Open Meetings Act was enacted in 1972. It's often known as COMA. Uh, this came out of, oh, some, you know, re government reform movements in the 60s. Kansas was kind of on the front of the curve when it came to Open Meetings Act. It is the cornerstone of public access to local and state government. And basically, its requirement is that local and state government conduct business of the public in the public. 
so that everybody has an opportunity to see what's being decided and things are not being decided in smoky back rooms as may have happened in the past. Um, coma applies when the body covered is a covered entity and then there is a meaning as defined by the act. So we're gonna talk about both of those things. Um, a covered entity is any legislative or administrative body, state agency, and political taxing subdivisions, including the city, and any subdivisions thereof. So BZA, even though it has some autonomy, is a agency of the city and receives and expands public funds on behalf of BZA. So therefore it is covered body and it is subject to coma. So the key thing that comes into effect in these deals is not whether or not you're covered, but whether there is a meeting. A meeting is a gathering or assembling persons through use of a telephone or other type of media, medium for interactive communication. So it could be emails, it could be texts, anything like that that would be a gathering or assembly by a majority of the membership of the body and for the purposes of discussing the business of the affairs of the body. So you have to have some type of communication by a majority of the body for the purpose of discussing the business of the body. So those are the three key things. And interactive communication is any communication that clearly applies when people are, members are in physical presence of one another. For example, tonight, is obviously a meeting. You're in the presence of each other. Telephone calls, including conference calls, work sessions, briefings, video conferencing, online communications, especially where there is an opportunity for contemporaneous communications or interactions, those are all meetings. Um, so a majority of the membership there are seven members to the Board of Zoning Appeals. Board of Zoning Appeals. So a majority is the same as a quorum, which is four. So there has to be a communication of four. If there's three, then it's not a meeting. So the key number is four members. And then this is the, well, this is this and, and communications. Discussing the business of the body. So this is a discussion of public business, things that are gonna come before you, is what triggers coma. It's not vote, binding action, or some other type of decision made behind closed doors. It just has to be the business of the body. So for example, social gatherings are not subject to coma. If you had a get together, where you just socialize, that's not necessarily a violation unless you talk about things that are the business of the body. You may attend uh, conferences, where uh, issues related to the Board of Zoning Appeals or zoning or those types of matters are discussed. And if there's more than four of you, that would not necessarily be a, a violation because there would not be a discussion of the business of the body. So what we're talking about when we talk about the business of the body is something that's either been before you, is coming up before you, or may have been in the recent past. So anyway, just keep Keep that in mind. Uh, the Attorney General has indicated that the mere fact that the communication is electronic does not by itself raise a comment issue. However, to the extent that the electronic communications 
create interactive discussions among the members of the board, then it could very well be an issue. A single email sent to all the other members would not necessarily be a violation, but participation in the chat room, instant messaging back and forth between a number of members, or those types of deals could very well be a violation of home. So if you're engaged in any of that behavior, be very wary of, that there is a violation. Um, in the past, the Kansas Attorney, Attorney General has found that a majority of board members were posting back and forth on, on social media. I think they were doing that on Facebook uh, about a recent decision was a meeting. They were in violation. They had to they had to go to training and do various different things. So be very wary about using social media regarding your duties as a member of the board. Um, anyway, so like I said, be very be very cautious when using social media, discussing the business of the board or uh, what's going on before the Board of Zoning Appeals and putting it out there in the public because it can be misinterpreted even if you didn't intend for it to be communication among others. Now this is a key thing. This has come up a number of times in various communities' emails. Uh, avoid initiating online discussions with fellow members through emails. Uh, you may receive emails about procedural matters and other types of things in the city that are also sent and copied on the email but avoid at all costs hitting the reply all function. There have been a number of, of uh, governmental body members in the, in the ground the state that hit reply all and inadvertently caused uh, open meeting violation by revealing information of that type of deal. So at all costs, avoid any reply all. Fly back to the city, you may reply to another commissioner, but just don't hit reply all. And then this is a key thing, it's a serial meeting. Serial meeting is a series of interactive communications of less than a majority, and is not permitted under coma. Violation may occur if it, these three things are met. If it collectively involves the majority of the membership of the body, it shares a common topic of discussion that is a business affair of the body, and is intended by the participants to reach an agreement or some type of consensus regarding binding action. How this usually occurs is Commissioner A will send an email to Commissioner B saying, hey, I intend to deny that because I think that's a problem. And then Commissioner B sends one to C, et cetera, on to D. And that becomes a serial meeting. Even though there's just communications between discrete members, it is a serial meeting and a violation of coma. There's been a number of people that have gotten in trouble through that. So be aware. Do not engage in serial meetings if you can. Do not forward discussions of those types of things of how you're going to vote to other commissioners. So, COMA applies when the body involved is a covered entity and there is a meeting. And for there to be a meeting, there must be interactive communication. The majority of the membership of the body, which is four members, and the members discuss the business of the body. That is any item that's coming up, any item that you have just recently in the past discussed. Uh, there's some type of line, I don't know exactly what it is, but it goes, you know, far in the past. You can probably discuss about it, you know, about things that have happened, but 
If it was recent past, I know that has been a problem. Uh, Coma requires all meetings to be open to the public. Proper notice of meetings must be given. They have to be held in places that are accessible to the general public, so you can't hold them in a place that like, is inaccessible to ADA members or upstairs or difficult to hide. It's also a violation to like have a meeting and adjourn it to avoid people. Uh, the meetings must be conducted so that the public may observe or listen to the proceedings, and that is the key factor of coma. Um, notice must be given. Uh, does not require a given in a particular time frame, but the notice must be first requested and the body is required to provide it. So we have certain uh, email visions and people on, online can request notice of the meetings and we send that to them. So that is something that must be given if they request it. Otherwise, you know, we just give notice generally. Agendas, uh, COMA does not require that an agenda be created, but if an agenda is created, which we do, it, it has to show what's gonna be discussed. Uh, it has to be made available to those who request it. We generally make those available to anybody who comes to the meetings, anybody who's online. Agendas can always be amended as you go through the meeting and rearrange it like you did tonight, move things around. Um, if agendas exist, they must be made available, like I said, to those who request them. Now, the key thing about coma is what the penalties are. So I just want to make you aware of that before we get into conflicts of interest. Uh, if there is a violation of coma, any decision that the BZA makes may be voidable. That means it can be erased and you may have to go back and hear it again. There is a civil penalty that can be assessed against members of the BZA, $500 each for each violation. Uh, the violation must be knowingly made. That doesn't necessarily mean intentionally. You just have to know that you engage in the discussion. You may not have, don't have to have a specific intent to violate the act. You just have to knowingly involve yourselves in the communications and that could create a problem and which would lead to the penalties. Um, court can issue injunctions against the BZA and issue writs of mandamus requiring the BZA to take certain actions or prohibiting and the costs of the action are always to enforce the coma are always assessed against the BZA. And just to give you an idea of how serious the state is about these, if an action is brought to enforce coma, the burden of proof is not on the plaintiff. It will be on us to show that there was no violation, which is a complete reversal. So they, are, they take these things very seriously. And also, if there's any borderline kind of case, the benefit of the doubt is going to go to the plaintiff and not to us. So that is kind of the overview of, of the Kansas Open Meetings Act. Does anybody have any questions before we get into conflicts of interest? So Randy, pretty much when we leave this room, if my wife asked me how was the meeting, I tell her to rewind and watch <laughs> the meeting, <laughs> just to be on the safe no. side. Now, that is not a problem. You, you may talk to spouses. You may talk to other people in the community. Yeah, it's no. just a question of when you have uh, 
talk to members of the other of the board about what happened or what did and that number exceeds four then you have a problem you can actually talk to one other member you can go have coffee with one of the other members or you know have another type of beverage or whatever you want to do and, and talk about it that's not a problem it's just when four people are engaged that's a problem so you can always talk to spouse or significant others regarding uh, what happened what, what went on just don't talk to my wife and have her talk to me <laughs> Third party. <laughs> I know. I was All just right, kidding. So anyway, that, that's key. I mean, that's the that's the key deal. And basically, you know what's going to happen if you get in trouble? It's going to be embarrassing. You're not going to really get in a lot of trouble. I mean, theoretically, but your name's going to get in the paper. You're going to have to go to classes, and it's just a drag. So, my my recommendation is always if there's an issue or a question that you have. Bring it up to the attention of, of Catherine or myself. I think we're going to give you uh, our contact information and, and contact us before you engage in any of these types of behaviors. But anyway, this is just to make you aware that certain things that you might think was innocent could lead to trouble. All right, now on the conflict of interest, this is a little more serious. The penalties are a little more serious as we go through, not that coma is not serious, but conflict of interest laws actually are criminal penalties as opposed to civil penalties. So that's what we want to do. Now, um, this came out of the conflict of interest law in the 1970s. And basically the key is to ensure that people do not use public office for private or personal gain. And that is just the basic goal of this whole act. Um, so the situation is, what you have is a substantial interest. So if you have a substantial interest, you may not act on some, and hold on to this, I'm just talking about substantial interest before we move on. A substantial interest is something that you have where it's a viable interest and something that comes before the body and you act on it. If you do, you have a problem unless you have already filed with the election officer at the county, county election officer, which I think is the county clerk. They have they have a form or they can file a statement of substantial interest regarding these things that come up. And so you can act on various issues that come before the board. If not, then to avoid getting in trouble, then you would need to recuse yourself. So, for example, if you have a company and your company is seeking a variance for something, you really can't rule on that. You have a substantial interest. Now, if you have listed that substantial interest, you might be able to actually vote on it. Otherwise, you have to recuse yourself. However, if you act on something where you have a substantial interest without either recusing yourself or filing a substantial interest, you might have a problem. So let's talk now about what is substantial interest. I think there's five of them, six of them. Uh, first of them is if you have own $5,000 or 5% of any business that comes before the board, then you have a substantial interest. For example, if AT&T comes in and seeking a variance and you own $5,000 shares, even though it's not 5%, you know, you have, a, you have a substantial interest in AT&T that comes before the board. So you have to have either file a statement of substantial interest or you have to accuse yourself. 
If you have 5% of a business or an LLC that comes before the board and has property and they're seeking a variance or they're bringing some type of other appeal before the board, then you have to again file a statement of substantial interest or recuse yourself. Second one is um, if you have received taxable income in the amount of 2,000 from any business or combination of businesses in the previous year, that is a substantial interest. And again, you'd have to recuse yourself and file a statement. Um, this is you know, some type of business that you're running and you get $2,000 there before you because they paid you for that and it's taxable income. You have to you have to recuse yourself or at least put that on your statement of substantial interest uh, if an individual or your spouse uh, during the previous 12 months receives goods in the, in the value of $500 or more from a business or combination of businesses that also could be a substantial interest for example if you're at Dillon's and you win a shopping spree of $500 or more you now have a substantial interest in Dillon's. If you are given a gift that exceeds that amount by a business, you have a substantial interest in that business and need to report it. Uh, four, if you are a director or office associate or partner of any business other than certain uh, not-for-profit corporations, irrespective of whether you pay for it, if you're on the board of directors, then you have are considered to have a substantial interest in that business. So if you're on the board of directors for, uh, I wouldn't say the Boys and Girls Club because they would probably be, uh, qualify as a not-for-profit organization, but if you're on the board of some type of other board that doesn't qualify as a not-for-profit, you probably need to recuse yourself or have listed it on your statement of substantial interest. Um, then this is $2,000 in commissions in the past year. So if you're like a real estate broker, you sell insurance, these types of deals where you have received that much from an entity that appears before you, you would have a substantial interest in that entity. And that's the five of them. Does anyone have any questions regarding those? All right, if not, we'll move on to the penalties. Um, so yes. How you avoid this is you either recuse yourself or you file a statement of substantial interest with the county election office of Douglas County, Kansas, which is the city, well, the county clerk, not the city clerk, and you list out who you have a substantial interest in, and then you can vote or consider items that appear before the board. If you do not do that, you need to abstain. If you do not abstain, there are serious repercussions if you take action on something that you have a substantial interest in. The penalties are, it's a class B misdemeanor. And if you're convicted, it's a class B misdemeanor, and go on your record, you'll have a fine of perhaps up to $1,000. You may be incarcerated for six months, or you may be fined and incarcerated. So be very careful about this. If you have anything or you think that you perhaps have an interest in anything, please let Catherine know. She'll contact me or you can contact me at any time. And I think on the forms that Catherine was given, it should have our contact information. We get, con we get contacts from members of boards 
throughout the city, we have a number of advisory boards, and they ask questions, and we provide advice to them all the time. However, if you're not satisfied with that, or if you're not comfortable coming to us, we understand that there is a state governmental ethics commission, and I have provided that information to you in the handout. And the key about that is you can ask for an advisory opinion from them. They will provide it to you in writing. And then regardless of what you do and regardless of the decision that's later made, you have, will have immunity if you follow their, their uh, recommendation or their order. So even if they're wrong, they give you the wrong advice, it will be immunity for you. You cannot get in trouble for that. Um, and that's this right here. So there's a governmental ethics commission. You can ask for advisory opinions from them. They will provide it to you, and you will be protected if you follow them. And that's the contact information. There's also city ethics policy, which I'm not going to go over, but basically it, it, it outlines and provides that, you know, if you use the, your position as a member of the Board of Zoning Appeals for personal gain or other type of... Oh, uh, you know, improper purpose. You hold yourself as acting as a out as a member of the BCA, though you haven't been authorized to do so. You can get in trouble. You might be removed from the board. And other than that, that's it. Does anybody have any questions? I have a question. Uh, yeah, if if you own property within a certain distance of an application, uh, do you have an, an obligation to at least identify that, or do you? It, it, you know, it's not recognized as a conflict of interest under the state law. It's right. not a violation of the ethics policy, and the reason we have you on the board is because you live within the city and have knowledge. It would probably be a good idea to to say, hey, just for purposes of transparency, to say, hey, I live within that neighborhood. I'm not affected by it. Um, if you believe you are affected by it, or if you believe it causes you a situation where you have a situation where there's at least an appearance of impropriety, maybe it's your best friend, maybe it's your, a relative of yours, uh, not necessarily a conflict of interest, but you might want to recuse yourself just just to avoid, you know, that appearance of impropriety. Okay. But otherwise, no, you can act on things within your own neighborhood. All right. Thank you. Any other questions? Okay. And again, and if you ever have a question comes up. Contact me. I think my contact information was in there. I'm in the city attorney's office, or co contact Catherine, and she will forward your questions to me, and, and we'll get an answer to you as soon as we can. We want to protect you, and we thank you for your service on the board of zoning bills. You, you serve a very important service to the city, so thank you, and good night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank really you, appreciate the info. It's very helpful. Okay, um, item G, miscellaneous, and we have um, two parts to item G. Is it ready to go? Roles and orientation training material will be the first one. 
All right, good evening again, board members. Catherine Week, staff liaison. And we're going to go through our fun yearly training, our roles and orientation materials that we try to go over every year. Um, every year we try to update a little bit just to make sure we've got all the updated information and uh, get you going on a path forward that um, uh, the board can make reasonable and um, educated decisions on what their roles are. So we are, the Board of Zoning Appeals is a dual role board. It's a seven member board that's mayor appointed. We have a election, as you know, we had tonight for the vice chair, chair, and the staff liaison, our secretary, and that authority is listed um, in 2013-09. So as I mentioned, two, we're dual role, two boards in, acting in one membership. Uh, the Board of Zoning Appeals is going to hear hardship variances, floodplain variances, and administrative appeals. And then you also act as the sign code board of appeals, and they will hear sign code hardship variances, which is under the authority of Chapter 5, Article 18 of the city code. And floodplain regulations, which you also um, have authority to hear variances over, is a hardship variance, which also has the criteria um, outlined for a regular hardship variance, but it has additional criteria as well. We don't see them very often, but they do come before the board, and those are outlined in Chapter 20, Article 12 of the Land Development Code. So you are acting as a quasi-judicial board. Uh, so the Board of Appeals is not making any new laws but rather applying the existing laws to specific facts concerning one person or small number of people. And what does quasi-judicial mean? It's basically having a partly judicial character by possession of the right to hold hearings, conduct investigations, uh, weigh out disputed claims and alleged infractions of rules and regulations, and to make decisions in a general manner of the courts. So all the evidence that you hear needs to be in that public hearing since you are acting in the role of, uh, of a court. And what is your overall role? So variances are designed to alleviate a loss of rights. Um, you see examples of this frequently where codes have changed over time uh, and it's impacting a property owner's right to utilize their property in a co-compliant manner, just like every other property in that zoning district. The code requirement uh, cannot be met with that unnecessary hardship, which is a specific term defined uh, for the role of the BZA and in the Land Development Code. And basically, you're equalizing rights. Um, you're not granting additional rights to other uh, property owners, but equalizing the rights of someone who's been aggrieved uh, and has a loss of rights. And there are specific criteria that need to be met uh, for that safety mechanism uh, to kick in. And this is a moment in the presentation. I just want to give you kind of a quote from uh, public information out there about the roles of the Board of Zoning Appeals. Um, it's really tough to be a Board of Zoning Appeals member. You have to act on facts and legal criteria and not just sympathy or empathy or uh, what applicants uh, may feel is right. Uh, the BZA cannot legally decide their requests based on compassion, or only what, but only on whether that cri five criteria have been met. Um, this 
will be easier for you as a board member and for the applicant if the applicant understands what you must legally do um, and base your decision on. This does not mean that the Board of Zoning Appeals should be cold or mean or rude to the applicants, just that your compassion should not be guiding your decision. It's difficult not to be moved uh, by those that are upset. Um, sometimes there are tears in the room or stories that elicit sympathy. Um, we're all human, uh, but you should be able to separate those uh, moments of compassion from the legal criteria um, for you to make your determinations um, in all of your actions. And there's a couple differences in the Board of Zoning Appeals and other boards or commissions that are uh, under the city's authority. So our city commission um, is a, it's the legislative authority. They're the ones that are adopting or creating the code um, that goes into our uh, regulations. The Planning Commission um, proposes code and adjusts long-range plans. They make recommendations to the legislative authority. Basically, they're guiding the future development um, of our community. And then the Board of Zoning Appeals um, has a slightly different role in that they are only applying the current code. So they're not making recommendations. They're not making um, new codes. Um, they are just applying the codes that are on the books. And a board often has tendencies to be flexible or try to state that a code should be changed and discussed based on opinion. But that purview of that Board of Zoning Appeals is only to apply the current code standards and determine if that criteria and definition um, of unnecessary hardship has been met. The role of the BZA is not to judge or, or determine reasonableness of a variance request or if the request is close enough to the code um, opinions of the current code, whether it is outdated or difficult, should not be a factor. Again, those five criteria, which is why they're there, should be guiding your decisions. The BZA is also not an architectural review committee. They sh should not be bargaining um, for or negotiating like design changes of a variance request. You should only be applying the facts of the request and the context for the code sections that it applies to. If you are constantly seeing um, similar requests over time for variances, it may indicate that there is an element lacking in the code. That's a good opportunity for the Board of Zoning Appeals to make a recommendation to staff to carry that information back to the planning director so that they can analyze whether or not there is the need to review and adjust those code sections. So what is a hardship variance? Uh, typically, if you can apply a number or a measurement to the request or the code, it's likely a dimensional area standard and it's something that could be eligible for a variance if the threshold of the five criteria is met. The caveat to that would be if the quantity is, say, related to a use, like number of dwelling units on a lot, that would be what would be classified as a use variance. Um, that is not something that the board has purview over. There's a high bar um, and specific criteria outlined to grant a hardship variance. The variance once granted, and this is important to remember, runs with the land um, because it's assumed that that criteria have been met and the land itself is what is creating that hardship. 
and we'll discuss the specific criteria for review. Ultimately, one should be able to ask the question if a certain project development was to go away and the site was completely redeveloped, would that hardship still exist? If that is the case, then it likely is going to meet all of those five criteria. There are two types of variances. Um, per Kansas statute, the BZA is not authorized to grant use variances. We will only see uh, dimensional and area variances. We will not see use variances. Use variances are what would be considered something like spot zoning, where you're permitting a use um, that is typically not permitted in that zoning district. And again, pl planning staff will not bring these before you, but it is good for you to be aware of them um, because sometimes they come up in discussions um, and, and you should have the knowledge that uh, the Board of Zoning Appeals is not able to grant those types of variances. There are additional limitations on the Board of Zoning Appeals. We have what are called planned developments and we also have a section in the code called the SMART Code. Those two elements have different processes um, that do not come before the Board of Zoning Appeals. Um, changes to plan developments have to go through a revision process, so anything that would vary there would have to go through a revised plan development, so the Board is not going to see those items. And then Chapter 21, um, which is the SMART Code, has a different process. It's a committee, um, and there's a waiver <coughs> process um, for those elements that are in the SMART Code. The board is not authorized to give variances for items in the code where terms like prohibited, shall not, not permitted, not allowed, illegal, those are prohibitions and the board is not able to grant variances for things that are prohibited. Um, so that is also good to know. And again, staff will typically not bring those before you um, unless there's an error of some sort. Uh, those applications that do come in, asking for variances uh, for something that is prohibited, the planning director would typically deny the variance application. They're not denying the variance, but they would deny the application and give the reason. At that point, uh, I suppose an applicant could make an administrative appeal based on the determination, but the board is not authorized to grant variances for prohibitions. We're gonna talk a little bit about the definition for unnecessary hardship. That is a specific definition that's rele relevant to your board specifically because you're the one that's determining whether or not there is an unnecessary hardship. And it must meet the specific definition. So there's a difference between a hardship. Um, oftentimes we hear applicants that come before us that there is a hardship in meeting the code. That hardship if it does not rise to the level of the specific definition, is not meeting the criteria for unnecessary hardship. An unnecessary hardship is defined as the condition resulting from application of these regulations when reviewing the property and its environment that is so unreasonable as to become an arbitrary and capricious interference with the basic right of private property ownership. So mere financial loss or the potential for financial advantage does not constitute unnecessary hardship. And that's in the definition section um, of our land development code in Article 17. So staff will continue to provide that full definition in the staff report uh, for reference. And the board is encouraged to review it each time um, you're looking at an application and going through the analysis just to 
keep your memory fresh on what the distinction between hardship and unnecessary hardship is. So the five criteria for review, uh, uniqueness, which is also specified cannot be caused by the applicant. Uh, the second one is no adverse effects to neighboring property um, owners. The third is that definition doesn't meet the level of unnecessary hardship. Again, it's specified that this cannot be caused by the applicant. And then the fourth criteria is whether or not it impacts health, safety, welfare, um, and the other items listed in that criteria. And then whether or not the fifth criteria is whether or not the spirit and intent of the code has been met. And the variance request has to meet all five criteria for the board to grant a variance, not just one or several, but all five. So we're gonna talk a little bit about each one briefly. Um, uniqueness should be linked to the zoning or the platting and not something that has been caused by the applicant. It could be an instance where uh, there used to be an exception in the current codes, but that exception has been removed. So when the original structure was built in conformance with the regulations at that time, in order to repair it, if it has become damaged or worn over time, they can't meet the standard because the exception is no longer there. That might be an instance where it is unique. It is being created by the adoption of new codes uh, or a change in zoning district. So no floor plan or specific business should be considered when you're thinking about uniqueness. The unique condition should exist regardless of development of the business owner or property owner. And that's hard to remember sometimes, but it's good to keep that in mind. It should not be applied to a specific applicant or a user or a property owner. The subject itself, property itself should meet the criteria for uniqueness in and of itself, regardless of what is on the site. So variants, again, run with that land and that emphasizes that the land itself is what's triggering a need for a variance, which is why they run with the land. It's assumed that the land is creating the hardship in itself. If the uniqueness is there, regardless of what might be developed there in the future, it's a strong case for meeting uh, this criteria point. The second criteria, that there's no adverse effects um, to neighboring property owners, again, just to keep in mind that a variance request is solely intended to equalize the rights of this property owner with the other rights of similar properties in similar zoning districts. It does not, um, it should not impact others. If you're granting variances um, that do not meet this standard, you are in essence granting someone additional rights that the rest of the uh, zoning district or similar properties would not have. The third criteria is that definition of a necessary hardship. And again, just to stress, it's typically created by a rezoning, platting, a downzoning, new code adoptions that have rendered the property unusable for a conforming use. And any development prior to the current regulations are now somehow in, uh, not compliant or not able to be used in a compliant manner in the code. A hardship is something that could be limiting your design choices. So we are gonna hear hardships in almost every application that comes before you. There's a hardship, that's the reason why they're asking for the variance. But does it rise to that level of a necessary hardship? Preferences, 
uh, for designs or uh, business plans should not be given criteria in meeting the def definition for unnecessary hardship. That fourth criteria is the health, safety, and welfare um, and community well-being. The variance should not be granted where it would perhaps create an unsafe environment. Um, example might be that something is uh, proposed to be in a setback that's close to a busy right-of-way. Um, maybe this would create a hazard of some sort. Um, that would be something that may or may not meet the criteria of item four. So just to keep in mind, general welfare is a criteria for review. And then the fifth criteria is whether or not the spirit and intent of the code is being meant, met. Um, it doesn't impact other code regulations or the purpose of the regulations. So staff will oftentimes put um, purpose statements or um, the introduction paragraphs to code sections in your staff reports just to help you uh, when you're analyzing uh, each request to see whether or not it meets that spirit and intent. It, the purpose statements help to get to that. Uh, using existing conditions on the site that may be required by other code sections to justify meeting a criteria is not considered um, keeping with the spirit and intent of the code. So if you have to disregard certain code requirements to justify this variance request, it's probably not meeting the intent of the code. So staff reports and recommendations. Uh, you're gonna get a staff report with every variance request before you. Um, staff reports are required uh, to be provided to the board via uh, code section 20-1309. Um, the staff has to make a recommendation. That staff report is going to analyze the request against the five criteria. And staff will also compile all the relevant code sections, history of the property, any context related issues that we can find related to that particular property. We will try to include that in the staff report so you have all that information uh, for you to make your recommendation or to make your determination. And then staff will make a recommendation itself based on how the ana analysis falls. Uh, staff will make a recommendation to the board. <clears throat> so as the Board of Zoning Appeals, you are also going to hear administrative appeals. And that what is an administrative appeal? It's an alleged error in any order, requirement, decision, or determination. And some uh, items of note, uh, you cannot overturn an administrative determination unless there is substantial factual evidence that that error was made. And the burden of proof is on the, app, uh, the appellant uh, to show that there was an error. And this is where the board really functions like a court and it adjudicates that code. You're gonna make a formal judgment or decision about a disputed matter. Excuse me. Yeah. Catherine, mm -hmm. uh, this only applies to the planning director, is that correct? Yes. Okay, so it's not anybody else, not any other? It could be. Yes. Is that right? Mm-hmm, yep. So, so like whom? A code official. So like the building official could make a um, in code enforcement uh, determination and uh, require an action, um, and that person receiving that uh, 
Okay. That notification could file an appeal. It's happened in the past. Those have come before you um, before. That would be an administrative appeal. What you are limited to um, with administrative appeals is that you cannot, um, someone would not be appealing a planning commission uh, decision to you. That is, planning commission is not an administrative official. Appeals of a planning commission deci decision would go to the city commission or the legislative authority. And then you can't, uh, we will not hear appeals of staff reports. They are not administrative determinations. A staff report might get to a determination, but the staff report itself is not an administrative determination. And in any of the review procedures in Article 13 are not considered administrative orders. Um, Article 13 lays out what is required, what applications are required, and what is required to be in those applications. Those are not administrative orders. Those are procedural matters, um, and those are not um, under administrative appeal review. And then again, just to note that you cannot overturn an administrative appeal unless there's substantial factual evidence that an error occurred. And in exercising your appeal power or the uh, decision of the appeal, the board has all the power of the official for whom the appeal is taken. And you may reverse, affirm, or modify the decision being appealed. If the board determines it's necessary uh, to obtain additional information uh, to weigh that appeal, you would remand that appeal back to the official with whom the appeal is taken, and then direction with directions um, to obtain any needed evidence uh, for you to consider. And again, examples of uh, administrative appeals could be something the planning director has made a co-determination, any written order from code enforcement official or the planning director, um, or a building inspector of something of that sort, or process applications, um, again, they cannot be appealed. Um, and then examples before the board uh, for like loss of non-conforming status, that would be an administrative appeal if someone is um, uh, not in agreement of whether or not they are granted non-conforming status. Uh, a denial of a permit could be something that could be appealed um, to you if a sign permit is denied, um, that could be appealed to you. So those are examples. So what are your decision options? Uh, when you are acting as uh, the Board of Zoning Appeals, you have three options for a hardship variance. One is to approve that variance. One is to, or the second is to approve it with conditions. And then the third is to deny the variance. Um, we often have comments or questions about what does it mean with conditions. Um, some examples of conditions, if you approve something with condition, there could typically be applications, um, multiple applications related to a request, such as a minor subdivision and a site plan, in addition to a variance. Um, and a typical condition would be you would approve the variance subject to the approval of the associated site plan or minor subdivision. That's one example. You could also make a condition, um, I don't know, based on safety. If um, there's a setback uh, request, um, but it you know, might be in a tricky location, that safety is an issue, maybe screening is appropriate, you could make an addition, uh, condition that you would approve the variance 
with the safety uh, condition. And again, these are just examples. Um, we can kind of discuss those if they come up. Uh, for appeals, you again have three options. Well, actually you have four because you could remand uh, for more information. But if when you're making your decision, uh, you can either reverse the administrative determination, affirm either wholly or in part the administrative determination or modify that determination. And again, you're acting as that uh, administrative official. So um, you are in essence um, either affirming or denying. And again, uh, those appeals you should find convincing evidence that the error was made. Catherine? Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, back to the approving uh, variances with conditions. Can you give us some examples of the kind of conditions we could place on? Yeah, I tried or to Or the kind that we can, cannot place on something. Well, if, you're, if your condition is starting to go down the path of like negotiating an architectural detail or um, you can't grant a variance that was greater than the ask, um, those are conditions you could not do. Um, I tried to give some examples. Typically, the conditions you're probably going to see, and staff will, will try to present those to you in our recommendation if there's multiple applications. And this particular ask is subject to another application. It makes sense to condition the approval mm -hmm. for the uh, approval of that other application. Okay. Those are the typical ones you're going to see. But it's not like condition that they would place a fence if it's for a safety reason, uh -huh. it pro that it's something that is a potential, yes. If it's for safety reason, to right. mitigate a safety hazard. But then again, you would have to weigh whether or not does that meet the condition, or condition number four when you're having your analysis. So if your condition is um, negating one of your criteria points, I would say the condition is probably not a warranted condition, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? <laughs> OK. So a little bit uh, more about decisions. A denial is the correct action when the criteria has not been met. And again, we are all human, and denial is hard. And if the criteria has not been met, um, just keep in mind that that, that is your role um, to find that if it meet, doesn't meet the criteria, denial is the correct action. And again, that board is just, you know, you're there to adjudicate that code. You're not there to make favorable or unfavorable decisions, and you should not invent justifications based on personal opinion uh, to meet the criteria. After a decision has been made, um, they become effective the day of the meeting. So basically, they're effective right after you hold your vote. Um, staff will send out a code-required action letter. We usually send it out the next morning. Um, but sometimes we'll send it out that evening. If it's a short meeting, we'll send it out that evening. Um, variants, they expire within 24 months if a building permit has not been pulled. So if someone comes before you and the variance is granted, however, for whatever reason, you know, maybe their funding dried up or they decided not to move forward with the project and they do not pull a building permit for 24 months, then that variance is basically moot. It expires. 
And then any person that's aggrieved of a decision um, by the Board of Zoning Appeals has 30 working days to appeal uh, that decision and it gets appealed to district court. So you're familiar with that this year since we had that happen. Um, so there's an impact of your decision as well. Uh, the decision of the Board of Zoning Appeals can be appealed. It could be appealed by the applicant. It could be appealed by an impacted party. And the city can also appeal your decision. So if you are to make a determination that the city feels is egregious and goes against the city code or the interest of the city, the city itself can sue the Board of Zoning Appeals um, and appeal it to district court. So it, that goes both ways. So your other role um, is acting as the Sign Code Board of Appeals. Sign Code Board of Appeals is slightly different, but somewhat the same. So basically any person seeking a sign permit that cannot meet the restrictions or standard in that sign code may seek a variance from the restrictions and standards of the sign code by filing with the director an application for a variance. So basically if they will submit a building permit or a sign permit for their proposed sign and if in review staff determines that it doesn't meet the criteria, um, they would deny that permit and then that sign applicant would then, if they wanted to pursue a variance, would file a request for a variance. Sign codes also have uh, criteria points. There are three of them. Uh, some of them are very sim similar to the hardship variances. Uniqueness is the first, and that is that the variance request arises from conditions that are unique to the location in question and which are not ordinarily found in the same zoning district and that those unique conditions are not caused or created by the applicant. Again, this is similar to it can't just be a design preference. There has to be a reason why this, this particular sign location is unique um, and it should be based on uh, the sign code and the zoning district uh, for which it is located. The second is the public welfare. And again, um, similar to the hardship variance, is that this is not going to be materially detrimental to the public welfare, including for sign codes, visual appearance um, is an element of public welfare um, or interest to property or improvements in such zoning districts and or the neighborhood. Um, so this it's just a little example of something that does impact uh, neighboring neighborhoods. This is an order board or sign. Uh, we have requirements in our code for distance from residential properties or residential districts. Um, and so someone might ask for a variance um, from that. Um, so that would be something you would consider whether or not that's in the best interest of the public welfare. And then that unnecessary hardship definition, um, which I've probably mentioned way too many times, but it is also in the sign code uh, variance uh, process as well. So we want to make sure that it's reaching that uh, level of unnecessary hardship. And again, you must find all three criteria um, have been met to grant the variance for the sign. A little bit more about the board itself. Um, Deferrals and withdrawals must occur prior to hearing the case, which is why we have the section at the beginning of the agenda. <clears throat> Typically, the applicant will let us know if they're deferring or if they choose to withdraw. Um, and sometimes we get that posted on 
the agendas. Actually, lately we've been very uh, good about getting those posted on the agenda. The applicant usually lets us know well in advance. Sometimes uh, they may not decide until right before the meeting. And so that's when staff will let you know at that meeting whether or not there's been additional deferrals or withdrawals. Because once the hearing starts, um, they cannot defer or withdraw the item. You would have to make a determination once that hearing starts. And then also abstaining and recusing also must hurt, uh, occur prior to hearing the case. So you can't hear part of the case and then decide to recuse yourself. Um, if you think there's a, a reason why you need to abstain or recuse from the item, uh, you need to uh, do that prior to opening the hearing for that item. And that's also why we do that at the beginning of the meeting. And then just for city policy, the member that is abstaining or recusing must leave the room during that item, and that's just to keep any undue influence or sense of undue influence if you're in the room while the item is being heard um, for whatever the, the city has decided that it's best if the, the member abstaining recuses, leaves the room. And if it's digital, we'll put you in the waiting room. Um, or if you can step out into the um, chamber on the side, and then we'll bring you back in after the item is over. So a little bit about motions. We're gonna talk a little bit more about motions than we have in the past, just um, to kind of clean some things up. Uh, so motions should be clear, and they should include the variance request as stated in the application or in the staff report. And your motion should contain the word because. And the reason it should contain the because um, is that you need to list your reasoning for the determination. Uh, the Board of Zoning Appeals um, is also required to do findings of fact. Typically, our meetings can sometimes act as findings of fact. If we have to do written determinations for findings of fact, it's very helpful if in the motion you're very clear about why you made the determination so that if it does get appealed, um, we have that clear uh, delineation of how you got to your determination. And it's easy to add the word just because. that. That clarifies things, and you can say because, um, you know, as outlined in the in the staff report, all of the criteria were met, um, and so I find that, you know, making my motion that it meets all the criteria because, um, and then same for and particularly if you are um, maybe varying from what staff has recommended or any criteria points, if you outline that word because, you can just list uh, your reasoning, which you did tonight, which so that was good. And then uh, one final thing is attendance. Um, and this can be very difficult for BZA. It can affect quorum. We had the issue uh, last month. Um, so the attendance rules are in the bylaws. Um, and just FYI, it, you may have forgotten, but three consecutive missed meetings uh, requires us to notify the appointing body, or the mayor in this case, and that's typically done by uh, the staff liaison would let the um, chair know that a member has missed three meetings in a row and that I need to let the mayor know that. The mayor will typically ask that member, do you feel like you can continue, and then yay or nay. Um, also, for missed meetings in a calendar year, the board member should consider resigning. Um, so we try to, and we're gonna do that tonight, publish a calendar um, for all the meetings for the year. So hopefully everybody can get them on uh, their calendar. 
obviously things do come up and if you think you're going to be away or know you're going to be away if you give staff as much of a heads up as possible, we can sometimes uh, accommodate that. So the Board of Zoning Appeals has a 20-day notice period. So if for some reason we miss a meeting, uh, we have to wait at least 20 days. We have to send new notice out. It's a 20-day period. And that puts us basically a week before our next scheduled meeting. That becomes a hardship for the applicant if they have to wait. You know, they've met deadlines and anticipated timelines. So um, not to beat a dead horse here, but <laughs> attendance is important um, and quorum is important to carry on the meetings. I'll just add, we don't have any plans to change the hybrid model. So if you are traveling, yeah. we will we can continue to accommodate Agreed. a virtual meeting. Yep. And the just general conduct of any commission or board under the city's umbrella, um, the city um, adopted an ordinance in uh, 2017. Believe it or not, we had to do that because there was behavior that was not becoming of board members. <laughs> so Ordinance 7224, um, just, just general conduct. Please be respectful of the public. You know, we want to allow all viewpoints. You may have one opinion, the applicant may have another, but we just be respectful of everyone. Uh, try to be impartial and don't prejudge your items. Um, wait till you hear all the facts that come before you. And then the city encourages citizen engagement. So oftentimes people that are coming uh, before you, you know, they may not have had to speak publicly before. They may not be comfortable speaking publicly. You're making a decision that affects their livelihood or life. So um, you just want to be cognizant of that and just, you know, encourage citizen engagement to come and speak their opinions. And then just a general welcoming atmosphere. Um, and I, we, we don't have any problems currently. So just to make you all aware, this is just general information for your knowledge. And then this is our contact information, which I'm sure you have. Um, but any questions, comments, you can send them directly to me um, as the staff liaison or Luke, um, who's our handy planner two on the side here. And then uh, Jordan is our planning technician and you will see most likely emails from him about procedural things like quorum um, and notices and such. And that's all I have for our exciting yearly orientation training. <laughs> Thank you. Any questions? All right. That was very thorough. Um, the uh, final item on our agenda is um, approving the calendar for the next year, um, which was um, sent out with the packet or included in the packet. Um, Are you able to pull that up by chance? No? It's okay. Yes. I, um, I do have a conflict in October um, because the meeting is currently scheduled for the Rosh Hashanah holiday, which I observe. So... We can either change it or people can understand that I'm not going to be at that meeting, whatever your preference. But 
Anyone else have any um, discussion about the proposed calendar? Well, looks good. Yeah. We need to approve it. Uh, we need a motion, yes. I move we approve the calendar for next year, for the coming year. All right. Do we have a second? I second that. Moved and seconded. Uh, all in favor? Aye. 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 All right. Okay, and I'm going to vote no. Uh, calendar is approved. Um, do we have a, well, do we have any other business or anything else that anyone wants to bring up? If not, we'll I, I'm sorry, I have, to adjourn. <laughs> I have two questions. Okay. Uh, my last recollection of what I think I read in the paper was that the committee that was formed to consolidate uh, public groups or public committees uh, had recommended that the zoning board, the BZA, be consolidated with the, um, or be taken over, I guess, by the uh, building codes department? I don't think it was taken over. I think it was consolidated into one. So it would be all the technical boards into one board, but I can. I'm sorry, Catherine, I can't hear you. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll just turn around. Um, so I, I think that it was to be all those technical boards would be consolidated into one. I don't think it would take over the BZA um, because the BZA is a state statute board. Understood. Yeah. It, um, so, and the, the building code board is not. So, if anything, it would probably come under the umbrella of the BCA. So, has, has the city taken a... I don't think they have... Has it been formally submitted to I them? don't think so. I don't think it's... I think that was the recommendation of that overall arching committee, but I don't think it's... I don't think it's followed through there yet. Okay. don't have an update on that yet. Okay. Was everybody aware of that? I was not. I was aware that there were discussions about that, and I um, gave my opinion that I thought it was a horrible idea. I'm not in favor of it. But. So I guess um, when it comes before the commission, people can weigh in unless, um, well, I don't really want to I don't want this body to weigh in as a body unless and until we actually have a full discussion and see what the proposal is. And we could certainly put it on our next agenda if um, people would like to do that, but I don't think it would be appropriate tonight without more information. Yeah, I can look at putting that discussion item on the agenda for next month. And just an FYI, I believe we will have one item possibly for next month, at least. 
And then you had something else, Dean? Well, yeah, the, um, for lack of a better, the Marcy Francisco lawsuit. Is that any word on that? Um, I only know that there's some movement on it. I don't know what the movement is. Um, I believe there maybe is discussions between the attorneys, um, possible settlement, but I don't know. Okay. That's all I know. All right. Thank you. Hey, Catherine. Yeah. Um, you know, circling back to the, the first issue of, you know, uh, Board of Zoning Appeals being merged with the Building building Code Appeals Board, mm -hmm. um, the issue that you might inquire, you know, if, if you have the chance or can get the information, the issue you might inquire about from city manager or something is, you know, where Board of Zoning Appeals used to have to be a citizen of the city of Lawrence to be eligible to serve, you know, essentially, while I believe with the, you know, the building code, Board of Appeals, that's, I think there's some technical requirements. That's correct. Membership. Yeah. And so I would wonder how that would impact the current membership of the Board of Zoning Appeals. So I think that might be kind of, you know, a piece of information that if, if you find it, it might be helpful, but if you're not able to, if I nobody can, knows, yeah. then. I can ask those questions um, and maybe have a little bit more information for you at the next meeting. We can uh, have a discussion. I think the original recommendation actually was um, the building code board, the uh, BZA, and the uh, HRC. Um, that may have changed, but originally they were going to merge all three. And I think um, finding somebody that um, knows about plumbing and wiring and um, historic resources and has a general overview of um, hardships and land use, you're getting into a pretty narrow range of individuals who could serve and meet all those criteria. Um, so. yeah, these are really good questions, and I will um, try to get some additional information. Thank you. Okay. All right. Anything else? If not, I would love to hear a motion to adjourn. So moved. Uh, Travis Herod moves. Second by. Oh, second. Second by Adam Rankin. Staff, please call the roll. I think you guys can all just eyes if you want to have a hand vote there. All right. <laughs> Aye. 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 Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. Bye. Coming up. Uh. Please.